Welcome to the Dwell Church Sermon Archive. Dwell is a family defined by the love of God and committed to giving it away. Here is this week's message. Today we are continuing on in our study through Matthew. Very glad that you guys are here and joining us for this. Uh, Today is kind of an interesting little passage in the book of Matthew. And and honestly, I think one of the strangest stories in the uh, whole like story of Jesus that we get of of his lifetime. Uh, You see, it was kind of this weird in-between state. So he gets baptized. If you were here last week, he gets baptized by John the Baptist. And that's kind of like this like marker from God to the people around, like, hey, this is Jesus. He's my son. He's going to go out and share this good news. He's going to go out and share this message. Uh, I am proud of him. This is Jesus. Um, but then, all right, maybe the screen is distracting me, actually. Now I can actually see you guys turn dark every time it pops up. That's uh, really terrifying. Um, anyway, maybe they'll uh, work on fixing it, but you guys can also just sort of kill the feed while you're working on it if you want. Um, anyway, <clears throat> so in the book of Matthew, uh, you got this weird story. He's baptized by John the Baptist, and then he goes off, he wanders off into the wilderness uh, for 40 days and 40 nights, and it's kind of this weird sort of in-between place. It's kind of this like space between uh, what was and what is going to be sort of before he starts his ministry, uh, and it's sort of not yet, even though it's after his baptism, but before he like really goes around and starts teaching people. Uh, if you've been traveling with us thus far, you've seen that it started with like the birth narrative, then you have this baptism, and now here we are stuck in the wilderness. And it's kind of something like a liminal state, uh, a liminal state. Now, you may have heard that word before, Uh, It's kind of uh, this odd word uh, that refers to spaces in between spaces. Those turn out to be the ones that transform and shape you the most, most of the time. But they're kind of these like in-between kind of spaces. Think of like like a threshold, like when you're walking into a place, or maybe even that odd place between two glass doors when you're walking the grocery store, you know? It's kind of like this in-between space. Are you out or are you in? Are you really uh, in, the, thresh- in the, the space where you're going, or are you stuck sort of in this in-between space? Anthropologically speaking, I don't even know if I can say that word, uh, liminality, it really literally means a threshold, and it's this quality or ambiguity or disorientation that occurs in the middle stage of a rite of passage, when participants no longer hold their pre-ritual status, but have yet to begun uh, the transition to the status they will hold when the rite is complete. And we see this throughout cultures uh, all across the world, and I feel like this is kind of that space for Jesus, this liminal space between what was and what will be. You see them everywhere uh, in art and in life. They're the spaces between spaces. In Harry Potter, it's that weird white train station after he and Voldemort almost destroy each other. Remember that? In Stranger Things, it's the black watery space called the Upside Down. Uh, in our lives, I feel like the most freaky and sort of strange and otherworldly spaces like that for us are airports. Have you ever been to an airport? It's kind of like a space, but not really a space. You're kind of in between two places. If you remember that, like, uh, Tom Hanks movie, you know, he was, like, stuck there because he couldn't go to one country or another country, and he was kind of in between two countries by being in an airport. 
I kind of enjoy it, actually. I feel like I like. Uh, I feel like I'm not myself in an airport. You know, like I, I know there's like a Josh who is living here in Denver, and there's a Josh who is going to wherever he is going. And airport Josh is just a completely different person entirely, right? He is just this strange creature, out of body, out of space, out of time. Uh, just this completely new being that only exists within the airport. Um, that is what a liminal space is. They occur in scripture as well. Uh, think about it. In Scripture, there are different places where Israel or people, or the people of God, were in these sort of separate, otherworldly spaces. In Exodus, it was the wilderness. The people of God were stuck in the wilderness for 40 years, waiting to go into the promised land. So they were no longer slaves in Egypt, but they were not yet the people that were living in the promised land that God had for them. Uh, think about in the New Testament, there's the Emmaus Road. So right after Jesus dies, uh, these guys are walking down this Emmaus Road. They're kind of in between Jerusalem and uh, the place where they were eventually heading. And Jesus joins them on that road. And that's this first real transition that we see between like uh, Jesus, who was, who was living and then had died. And then now he's starting to appear to people resurrected. And so they started on this journey as people who were sad because their Savior had died. And they ended this journey, uh, people who rejoicing in the resurrection. Hey, Cullen, we can just go ahead and uh, kill this whole thing. I think it's going to destroy me uh, the whole time. Um, so anyway, <clears throat> sorry about that, guys. These things happened in liminal spaces, the space between places, and sometimes those can actually be the most important places of all. Now, I want you to think about this, and I, I go on my long little like uh, liminal space rant for a reason. I want you to sort of consider the space that you're in right now, and I want you to ask yourself, like, in what ways are you kind of in this liminal space yourself? In what ways are you kind of stuck in the space in between spaces, even in your own lives? You know, uh, very often it feels like you're kind of just living your life, and it's surprising how often this happens. And you're looking forward, and you're like, well, I'm in this place where I'm not yet where I want to be right? Like, maybe you're, like, engaged, and you're saying, like, man, I want to be married. I'm, like, on the pathway to that, but I'm stuck in this in-between space. I'm stuck in between. Maybe you're even looking to that next job. Maybe you're looking to, you know, make some sort of major purchase or some sort of life decision. Maybe you're looking to buy a house or something like that, and you look around, and you're saying, like, man, I, I know where I want to be, and I think I'm on the road to getting there, but I'm stuck just right here in between. Maybe it's stuck between jobs, stuck between different life stages, whatever it is. It, it just, it's astonishing when you think about it how often it happens. And we often think of these liminal spaces, if we think of them like airports, then there's something really rare and there's something really random and they come in, in and out of your life pretty infrequently unless you're like, you know, a traveling salesman or something like that. But I think when we really, really start to think seriously about our lives, I think we find that very often we find ourselves stuck in these liminal spaces and I think they're incredibly important. Here Jesus is modeling exactly what it looks like for us by living in this liminal space. What's really interesting about this to me from this text, if you look at Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, uh, you might have to take out your Bible since we've taken away the screen from you, but if you look in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That's interesting. Jesus was led up into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. 
This tempting was not like a, a symptom or like an unintended consequence of him going into the desert. It was the expressed purpose of him actually heading into the desert. He walks off into the wilderness so that he can be tempted by the devil. This is very, very strange. It's also strange uh, that he sort of walks into it willingly, knowing what is going to happen, right? He's Jesus, the Son of God. He knows what's going on. He knows that the devil is out there, and he knows that he is going out there to be tempted. How strange that right after being baptized, this would be the first thing that he would do, wander off into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, in order to truly understand uh, this passage, I have to say just a brief thing about uh, the devil, just to confront some of our our sort of standard expectations, our cultural uh, ideas of who and exactly what the devil is. Now, uh, there's no tail, there's no horns. He's not this like red guy with like a cool mustache or something like that. He doesn't challenge people to fiddle battles, uh, I think. I don't see any of that biblically, right? That is all extra biblical. Uh, but also, the devil is an actual thing. And that might confront our cultural perceptions of the devil more than anything, right? I mean, it's weird. For those of us in this room who would even call ourselves believers, who would say that we are followers of Jesus, is it not difficult just to even, like, conceive of a devil? To just wrap our minds around what that actually is? I, I feel like we spend so much of our lives trying to live as if there is no devil. Like, yeah, like we're in favor of God, but we don't really know about this whole devil thing. We don't really understand all of that. We don't want to be one of those weird Christians who are like, you know, talking about demons and the devil coming to get you and stuff like that. But we see here in Scripture, it is a, a being both a person and sort of non-personal force, that Jesus is actually actively interacting with here. If you look in the Old Testament, uh, the word most commonly used for the devil is Satan, which actually uh, sort of most directly contra- or, uh, translates to uh, the accuser. It's almost like more of a title than it is even like a name for him. He is the accuser, and what he is doing, his entire purpose in the world, his life goal, is to act in opposition to God. He makes it his life goal to oppose God and to invite as many human beings as he possibly can to join him in that mission of working in opposition to the God of the universe. He tried it with Job in the Old Testament. He tries it here with Jesus. And I believe that he tries it with you and me as often as he can. Maybe even sometimes through ProPresenter, but that's a whole other story. (laughs) And I, I think we need to live embracing and understanding the reality, not trying to ignore it, not trying to fight it because it makes us uncomfortable, just recognizing that there is a force out there There's a being out there who's working to try and get you to oppose God, to try and get you to live against his goodwill for your life, to try and get you to join his side. And we need to be actively aware of this. So what we're going to do today is actually take a look at these three ways that he tried to tempt Jesus. And we're going to ask ourselves the question, is he trying to tempt us this way? And then we're going to sort of conclude with this idea of like, well, what do we do with this information? Like, even if we know this, what can be done? How can we even withstand the devil? 
Now, basically, all these temptations follow a similar pattern. The devil tells Jesus something. Jesus responds with Scripture, quoting Scripture to the devil. Sometimes the devil even uh, quotes Scripture to Jesus, and then Jesus quotes it back or quotes something different back to him. This is really, really interesting, and I, 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 I'm afraid I don't have, like, the two hours that I want to spend just completely nerding out on this. All of Jesus' responses come from uh, Deuteronomy 6 through 8, actually. And that's a really, really significant time in the life of Israel. They had just received the Ten Commandments. Uh, in that Deuteronomy 6 chapter, you also see the Shema, which is sort of like the central text for uh, Jewish people even to this day. It is uh, that the Lord our God is one and that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and might and soul. Our heart and might and strength. Um, it is right after the Ten Commandments, like I said, uh, in all of this, this is how the Lord is telling the people of Israel how they are ought to live. All right, so just uh, putting this all in Old Testament context, they are uh, people of God are enslaved by Egypt. They are sort of owned and dominated by them and treated very poorly. Jesus rescues them from slavery. They march across the Red Sea. They're at Sinai meeting with God. He gives them the Ten Commandments. He says, you're going to be a different people. You're going to be a blessed people so that you might be a blessing to the rest of the people of all of the earth. You are going to be my people and I'm going to be my God. And this is how you might live so that you might flourish. That's what he tells them in Deuteronomy 6 through 8. That's exactly what Jesus quotes to the devil right here. But the huge difference is Israel, from almost the moment they received these things, were not able to live up to this standard. They were not actually able to keep this law that God had given them. So what's really beautiful here is that Jesus, in confronting and warding off the devil, in quoting Deuteronomy 6 through 8, he's saying like, no, I'm going to live the way that God actually designed human beings to live. I'm actually going to uphold what Israel could not. I am going to be the new stand-in, the new figurehead, the new representative of Israel, and thus also all of humanity. And I am going to stand, and I'm saying I am not going to fall to the same old temptations that got us to where we are. I am actually going to live the life that God has called me to live. So, remember that as we are quoting back uh, to the devil these different texts. So, first off, uh, the first temptation is that we would take care of ourselves. Take care of ourselves. If you're taking notes today, you would see first temptation is to take care of yourself. Verse 2 says, And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Uh, this is one of those like, things where I did a lot of uh, deep archaeological study. I studied human beings in the ancient Near East, and I was asking myself a lot of questions and doing a bunch of research on this. And I found out that 40 days without food and water is a long time to anyone, right? Uh, that would actually be a really, really, really long time. So the devil comes to him and he says, hey, if you're the son of God, why don't you make yourself some food? That seems like a reasonable request, right? Here's what Jesus responds to him in verse 4. But it is answered, or but he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I love it. 
He kicks off here by saying, like, hey, I'm not going to be tempted by your schemes here because I actually don't live on bread alone, but I live on the word of God. And as he is saying that, he's actually quoting the word of God back to the devil to say, this is what I survive on. This is what I thrive on. This actually comes from Deuteronomy chapter 8. It says this in 8.3. Uh, and he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. In this per- particular situation that Moses is referencing, he's talking about a time when the people of God thought they were going to starve to death. They thought that they had just been brought out into the wilderness so that they might starve they said, how crazy is it that God like, released us from slavery, part of the Red Sea, defeated our enemies, we had all these plagues, all these miracles and everything like that. But now, here we are, we're out in the wilderness and we're going to starve to death. But God didn't let that happen. He stepped in and he fed the Israelites with manna from heaven, literally this food that just sort of appeared on the earth that came down from the sky that they may, not, they may know that bread, they do not actually live on bread alone, but rather live on the edicts and on the guidance of their God. That the same God that spoke the entire universe into being could speak food into being that they needed. He could actually speak it into action and it would happen. And the idea was, and the goal was, of that entire situation that the Israelites might learn that they do not actually live on bread alone. They don't live on just finding ways to fill their own bellies, but they live at the discretion and at the blessing of the God who is uh, caring for them, who is guiding them, who is leading them. I feel like this is not how, exactly how I live my life. And it's not how I think about what I need either. Like if somebody offered me some bread, especially if I was hungry, I wouldn't respond with like, no, God is the one who's going to take care of me. I don't live on bread alone, but I live on God. I live on his word. I live on his guidance in my life. The other day, uh, Evie came home and I asked her what she learned that day, which is, you know, kind of a standard question, right? So I say, hey, what'd you learn that day? And it kind of ranges, you know, it's a standard question, but I get all kind of unstandard answers. I learned that uh, Javon is really mean and he's not my friend anymore. We've gotten that one before. Uh, I learned that uh, there was a new game in PE called Pac-Man Tag, right? Uh, Those kind of things. This day, it was, I learned the difference between wants and needs. And I said, wow, all right, cool. I like that. Can I tell you, after she explained this to me, we had dinner, not three hours later, I was talking to her and I said, do you want to stay up late or do you need to stay up late? And she's like, I need to stay up late. I have all of these things to do. I need to stay up late. So uh, I chucked her into bed and locked the door and then walked out as a good father does. No, I didn't do that. But uh, it was a battle nonetheless. And then I stayed up much later than I needed to because I was sitting around thinking like, oh man, I've had a hard day. I'm going to watch one more episode of this junk TV show or something like that. Man, it's astonishing. Like, here it is, my five-year-old, and she doesn't truly understand what wants and needs are. That's kind of excusable for her. Here I am at 33 years old, and I'm not sure that I really understand what it is either. I also know that I have a great, great temptation in and of myself to confuse my own wants with things that I think that I need. Right? Like, how often do you find yourself saying, like, well, I, I need this thing. 
I need this thing to happen. I need this food. I need this, uh, this actual possession that I can have. I need this like new toy that I can play with. And we talk ourselves into thinking that it's something that we actually require for our lives. And I've noticed this too, like I, I felt like it would like go away when I became an adult, but it kind of just like, uh, it kind of grows, right? Like the more and more stuff you have, the more and more stuff that you feel like you need, you know, like, oh, we need this because we have this and it's like breaking and won't work without this new thing. Oh, we need this because our old one is broken. So we've got to like move on to the next newer and bigger one. Oh, we need this because what's the point of even, you know, like doing all of this if we don't have this thing in our lives? But the truth is, I don't think that humanity is actually built around those things. Here, Jesus is going out with what we would even think of as like basic necessities for life. And he's saying, actually, I don't live on that stuff. I live on God. I live on his word. And you know what happens to me when I usually face temptation like this? It usually hits on like a really, really bad day. And I say to myself, what I really need right now is just to, like, check out. You know, I just need to unwind. It was a bad day. I need to just, you know, eat some junk food, watch some junk on TV, unplug, unwind. Maybe I need to buy something to try and make myself feel better. Maybe I need to, like, fill my belly with something that will be tasty to me so that I can change the way that I'm feeling about my circumstances. That will make me feel better, right? That's what I think to myself. And the problem is we've all watched enough PBS in this room to know that that's not the case, right? Like when I'm saying it up to here to you, you guys are sitting out there in the dark audience thinking to yourself like, what an idiot, this guy. He thinks that's going to satisfy him. No, you're probably thinking, man, I did that last night. Man, that happens to me all the time. Like look at all the random things that we know in our brains won't actually satisfy us that we try and get to alter our mood and our perception of the world around us. Man, it's sad. You know what might actually make us feel better? You probably know this in your mind. Maybe spending some time actually reading the Word of God, seeing that in Psalms, David had the exact same thoughts and feelings that we did. Maybe taking some time and actually talking to the God of the universe who is willing and able to listen to you and hear even your most simple even your most sort of uh, human kind of thoughts and feelings. You know, what might make it feel better is actually saying to God what you're actually thankful for, the things that he has provided, the things that he has done. We know that this is much more a path towards healing. This is actually going to produce a different spirit inside of us, but we're so reluctant, or at least I am, to do this. And I wish when I face this temptation that I could do better. Let's move on to the second temptation. The second temptation is the most confusing one, I think. It is that, uh, to verify your faith. The second temptation is to verify your faith. Verse 5 says this, And then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. 
Now, like I said, this is by far the strangest one. Satan here is kind of like that bad friend uh, that you had when you were in elementary school. And he's like, huh, bet you won't jump off the top of the monkey bars. And what's crazy is when you're in third grade, that sounds like you don't even ask for terms for that, right? You're like, oh, yeah, bet I will. Like, who wins in that scenario? You jump off the top of the monkey bars, you break your arm, and uh, yeah, he gets to walk away fine. (laughs) You won the bet. Congrats, right? Like, it doesn't make any sense. That's kind of what it feels like here. Satan is like, oh, I bet you won't jump off of this building. Uh, If you're the son of God, why don't you prove it by jumping off of this building and having a bunch of angels show up and save you from hitting the ground? That is what Satan is offering to Jesus right here. And I think Jesus' response gives us an answer as to why this is problematic. Verse 7 says this, Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. There seems to be something here. I believe that Jesus is showing the tempter. He is showing the devil that he is not going to test God unnecessarily. It's almost like Satan is trying to get him to test the limits of his faith and God's willingness to catch him. He's saying, why don't you jump off? It's kind of like a God trust fall, right? He's like, well, if you're the son of God, prove it. Prove it to me. Prove it to yourself. Prove it to everyone involved. Prove it to everyone that would read this story for generations later that you could just jump off the building and angels would swoop in to catch you. But we have to ask, why is this so wrong? I mean, legitimately, Jesus could have done this, right? Like, if we believe that he's the son of God and he commands the angels, then he could have done this. The angels could have came in and caught him. So why is it so wrong? I feel like in a lot of ways, it's actually like breaking the rules of faith. Like, if we knew with 100% certainty that God would do whatever we asked, would we really need faith anymore? Would we really need to trust him at his word? Would we really have to believe if we could just see it right in front of our eyes, if we could just conjure whatever we wanted, whenever we wanted, it would be a totally different way of living, and I think it would in some ways be like cheating. I, uh, sometimes we play games uh, with Sarah's family, and uh, it's great because I dominate at them. Uh, her family is great, but I just destroy them in games all the time. And uh, we were playing Carcassonne a couple of Christmases ago. Uh, You can check the family history because this became a moment for us. I looked over at uh, my brother-in-law and I saw him. Carcassonne is like a tile-laying game. Saw him slowly and very subtly. You know, there's like a bunch of people around the table. Nobody's really looking at anybody else. He'd pick up a tile and take a look at it. Slide it back down to the bottom of the tile. And I like saw it happen once and I was like, oh, what is going on here? And I was like, maybe I just saw something wrong or something like that. He picked up another one and looks at it, slides it back down on the tile, on the next tile. Can I tell you, I lost it. I looked over and I said, what are you doing? And he said, nothing. (laughs) And I said, it looked like you were cheating. And he said, hmm. Just like that. And he never said another word. That was the weirdest thing. He felt no justification to defend himself. He's like, yeah, it was happening. And I was livid. I don't get mad very often, actually. It's not something that I experience all that often. But this situation, I don't know what it was, man. It just destroyed me. Because board games in and, in and of themselves are dumb, right? Like, we're just, you know, passing some time. You're having fun. You're thinking. It's, it's a game, right? If 
You're just sitting around playing games with your family. We didn't have any money on the line. We weren't trying to like exert any dominance over any, each other or anything like that. If in that situation you cheat, like what is the point of even playing this game anymore? You know, like what are we even doing here? Now, uh, I probably got a little out of control there. I understand that. The entire point, though, is uh, there are some things that if you cheat at them, they kind of are not worth playing anymore. And I think that's exactly the case with faith. Like, if we were able to somehow verify everything that God was going to do, like, if we could just confirm, we would never have to have this moment where we're saying, like, God, I don't know how this is going to happen, but I'm placing it into your hands. We'd never have this moment where we're like, God, I want this, but if it's not your will, then I don't want it, and so you just do whatever you're going to do. We'd never have this moment where we're like, God, I believe in the things that you have told me that you are going to do, and I want to see what that would look like in my own life. We'd never have to do that. We'd never actually need faith if we could just confirm everything that God was going to do. If our faith was fully 100% verified, then we wouldn't even need it anymore. In fact, the Deuteronomy correlation to this text is actually in reference in time to a time when the Israelites did not believe in God. They didn't believe that he would do what he say, said he was going to do. It was in uh, Deuteronomy 6.16, Jesus quotes this, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Now, Massa was a place where the Israelites were so thirsty that they started to say, God, why did you bring us out here? Now you have abandoned us and you have left us to yourselves. We don't even believe that you're here anymore. We don't even believe that you are with us. And then, as always, he provided water that came out of a stone for them to be able to drink. And Moses said to the people, don't test him like that. He is going to provide, and he will do it when he chooses. He offers many promises, but he doesn't work for you. Think about that. God has promised to take care of you. God has promised uh, to build his church. God has promised so many things throughout Scripture that does not make him our employee. In fact, quite the opposite. We serve at his good pleasure. Because of his kindness and grace, we are even allowed to be a part of his church. We are even allowed to be called his people. What that requires from us is living on faith. What that means, then, is living with some uncertainty. Right? Like living not knowing what's going to happen because we don't hold all the cards. We're not in control. And if that's the case, if Jesus is saying here, hey, I'm not going to give him the temptation to control everything. I'm not going to give him the temptation to verify my faith. I'm not going to give him the temptation to actually make God do everything I want him to do. Then maybe, just maybe, faith is a good thing. And thus, living in that uncertainty is actually something that is healthy and good for your life. What if living in a way with such uncertainty that we had to rely on God is actually better for us? What if living in a space where you're saying, like, God, I don't know if I can take one more step without you providing for me. I don't know that I can keep going on unless you step in and rescue me? What if that is actually a good and healthy thing for us? I mean, in your liminal space right now, whatever that is, think about what you are uncertain about. Me, I'm uncertain about a whole, whole lot of things. I don't really know what's going to happen. 
We've got some crazy stuff going on right now that I'll share a little bit about later. I feel like I've got one big thing, 10 medium things, 10 billion little things. My temptation is to look at God and say, God, take all of these things away. They are making me nervous. They're making me anxious. They're making me uncomfortable. I feel so uncertain. God, take these away. Or my temptation is to be like, God, I am tired of waiting on you. I'm just going to work as hard as I can to fix them myself. I am just going to take care of these situations so I can get out of this uncertainty because I don't want to be here anymore. God, I am going to fix this. Even if it's something that I fix, it won't be as good as your solution, but at least I can be in control of it. At least I can set my own timeline. And I think that's the temptation that we have. When maybe that uncertainty is actually an opportunity for me to believe in God more, to trust in God more, to have more faith rather than more fear. I wish, I wish I could do better. Let's look at the third temptation. The third temptation is to exert your power. To exert your power. Verse 8 says this, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. This temptation is much more obvious. He offered some power and authority and influence and glory and significance. Jesus said to him this in verse 10, Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. I like this. If this temptation is more overt and obvious, so is Jesus' response to it. He says, be gone, Satan. The irony of this one is I think it feels the most far from us but might actually be the closest. Like when we read this, we think like, yeah, I'm no megalomaniac, you know, I'm no dictator. Nobody's offering to me, hey, do you want to be in charge of the entire world and everything in it? I don't have that temptation because nobody's sort of throwing that out to me. But I think what happens more so is this temptation lives inside each and every one of us. When we try and use undue means to control the world around us, when we try and exert whatever power and authority we have in forms of dominance over the people around us, when we try and control things that are not ours to control, when we try and fight hard to gain and use whatever influence we may have to try and leverage it to get more influence and more authority just so that we can have more control over the world around us, so that we can have more power, we work towards getting more and more money because we think in it is power and authority over our lives, or we're not generous with our money so that we can use it for control over our own lives, when we try and influence or control people or situations, when we use unjust means to do so. I think this is even present when we try and present an alternative version of ourselves so that we can feel powerful. And I think this is a big temptation for me. I think I see it most when I like gather with other pastors, oddly enough. Sort of all get together and everybody's trying to like pretend like, oh, you know, my church is really impressive or look at these things that I do. It's the dumbest thing. We're like flexing on stuff that has no bearing in the real world, you know? We're like, look how much time I spend prepping for my sermon. (laughs) Booyah. It's very strange. 
And there's this temptation for me to try and just sort of present this picture of myself that I think people might like just so I can gain that influence because I feel like it will give me more authority and power and control. I know I shouldn't, but I still feel that pull towards trying to be something that I'm not, trying to control something that I shouldn't, trying to gain and pretend to as much power as I possibly can because in it I find security. In it I find comfort. And I wish I could do better. The irony here, and I think the real temptation, even as I was teaching this text, is to sort of look back and be like, do like Jesus did. Be better. Be better, like Jesus is. He stood up to all this temptation. We should too. Go out, get it, do it, have a great week. And I, I don't think that that's the, the true message of this story. I don't think that the takeaway is that Jesus faced off with the devil and won, and so should you be better. No. I think the message is that we have Jesus who has faced what we face, probably even more so. He had the actual devil standing here promising him all of these things, tempting him with all of these things, and he, and he alone is strong enough to stand up to it. That means that when we face hard things and temptations, Jesus is not like looking on us when we're facing difficult things and saying like, ha, you should be good like me. Do it. I handled it. I was fine. Oh, he's looking down on us and he's saying, I have been exactly where you are. I have faced exactly what you have faced. I understand what it's like. The author of Hebrews says it this way in Hebrews chapter 2, 17 through 18. And I think if you right now are facing just a ton of temptation in your own life, if you are facing that as a challenge, I need you to write down Hebrews 2, 17 through 18. It says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers, us, in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of people, to make payment for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He became like humanity in every single way, even facing off temptation, so that he might understand and be able to help those who are being tempted. He might understand the suffering that even standing up to temptation causes. He might understand what it's like to be you and what it's like to be me. And he steps in to offer help to those who are being tempted. 
So the lesson here is not that we should be like Jesus when we are facing temptation, but we should actually accept the help that he is offering to us because we know he has been through it before and now he stands at our side to stand up for us when we face this temptation. The lesson here is not go get it, go toe-to-toe with the devil, take out this temptation, you can fight it, you can be strong enough. No, the lesson is to hide behind Jesus and accept his help in facing temptation. The image that I seem to not be able to shake from my mind is like when a kid sees something scary and they kind of hide behind mama. You know, and that's crazy because like the scary thing could be like a kind of scary dog or something like that. Or it could just be like a stranger who asks them how old they are for some reason, right? And they kind of like hide behind mom. And you can see, like I love it, like little, you know, toddlers or something. They like want to be inside of mom's skirt somehow, right? Like they want to just be completely disappeared. They're hiding behind her leg. They're saying like, I'm invisible, I'm invisible. You can't see me, right? Like they are hiding out because they are so terrified. And they know, they trust in mom in that moment to protect them from whatever they may face. I think when we are being tempted, when we are being tempted by the devil, and it's foolhardy to rush into that thinking that you can conquer that situation, and it is all wisdom to hide behind Jesus, to hide behind his cloak, if we truly understand what we are up against and who we have on our side fighting on our behalf, this is how we would react when we are tempted. We'd stand shivering and afraid behind Jesus' cloak, saying to him, as he taught us to say in the Lord's Prayer, lead us away from temptation and deliver us from the evil one. Very practically, it looks like this. When we desire to feed off of things that aren't good for us, when we desire to try and satisfy our own desires, as opposed to what is good for us, feeding off the Word of God, we need to hide behind Jesus. When you desire to try and make God do something so that you might control the situation, so that you might verify your own faith, hide behind Jesus. When you see that desire perk up inside of you to assert your pride or your control or your power or your dominance, hide behind Jesus. Hide behind Jesus. Uh, you guys are familiar with uh, the St. Saint, Saint Patrick, um, you know, likes things that are green. He's kind of a leprechaun kind of guy. Uh, no, he actually was a real saint uh, who helped bring the gospel to Ireland, and he came up with uh, this prayer that we have recorded that I think in some ways speaks to exactly uh, who God is calling us to be and how God calls us to interact with the world and face temptations in our everyday life. So I'm just going to conclude... Uh, praying this both for myself and for all of us today. So you can close your eyes and pray with me. I arise today through God's strength to pilot me, God's might to uphold me, God's wisdom to guide me, God's eye to look before me, God's ear to hear me, God's word to speak for me, God's hand to guard me, God's way to lie before me. 
God's shield to protect me, God's hosts to save me from the snares of the devil, from temptations of vices, and from everyone who desires me ill. Afar and anear, alone or in a multitude, I summon today against all these powers, between me and evil, against every cruel and merciless power that opposes my body and soul, against incantations and false prophets, against black laws of pagandom, against false laws of heretics, against craft of idolatry, against every knowledge that corrupts man's body and soul. Christ, shield me today against poison, against burning, against drowning, against wounding, so that my reward may come to me in abundance. Christ with me. Christ before me. Christ behind me. Christ in me. Christ beneath me. Christ above me. Christ on my right. Christ on my left. Christ when I lie down. Christ when I sit down. Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me. Christ in the mouth of every man who speaks of me. Christ in the eye that sees me. Christ in the ear that hears me. I arise today through a mighty strength, the invocation of the Trinity, through a belief in the threeness, through a confession of the oneness of the creator of creation. God, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. We hope it brought you closer to Jesus and more in touch with the world around you. Being a Christian in today's culture can be hard. Fortunately, he gives us the gift of community through his church. So we would love to invite you to join us for one of our Sunday morning gatherings or for one of our weekly small groups. All the details you need can be found on our website, dwelldenver.org.